I am, before I start, just going to make sure that you can hear me. So the first person who comes on, tell me if there's any sound. And uh, if there's no sound, um, then, hey, what can we do? So come, say hi, write down where you're from, why you're here, what you're doing. But mostly if you can hear me. We've got 41 people listening. Yes, yes, yes perfect. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Okay, thank you, Tim. Um, I am here in Detroit. I leave tomorrow. I love Detroit. This is my spirit animal. Honestly, it's so like Belfast. It's raw. It's dirty. It's cool. Um, I feel alive here. Love it. Love it. And I've just done a building on fire event uh, all day in this place called the Kresge Estate. This incredible mansion that some people bought for like $100,000 because property's so cheap here and it was a mess. It was like Fight Clubhouse and they built it up um, and now like five or six people live here at a time and they do events and uh, everything's cool because you turn on lights and sometimes they don't work, sometimes they kill you. Um, there's doors that open up into third dimensions, there's doors that don't open up at all and it's just this crazy cool space. Uh, I really love it. So enjoying Detroit. But uh, today on Building on Fire, I had a guest speaker with me, a good friend, Kent Dobson. Uh, Kent, some of you will know, he was the pastor of Mars Hill uh, Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, he worked alongside Rob for a lot of years. You were worship leader. Yeah, I did the music in the early days when he was uh, preaching away. And then I took his job, essentially. Yeah, yeah he stole his job. Basically, that's what happened. He quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Kent was doing that. Kent, um, Kent's dad was, uh, you know, a very, very important religious figure, worked with Jerry Falwell. Um, yeah. And uh, so Kent grew up in a very religious kind of world. You know that thing from the inside. Yeah. And um, so he, he came along and he was speaking on um, this idea of the hero's journey. And this idea of, I, there was one quote, because I don't like that term, the hero's journey, because yeah. for me, it sounds like you mentioned like Disney. Yeah, I mean, it's like on one level, you hear the hero's journey and you think, oh, I know what this is. It's, uh, uh, I have like some problem that I need to conquer and I head out into the wilderness and I have certain trials, but in the end, I'm victorious. Yeah. I pull out the sword, I slay the dragon, but the hero's journey, at least according to Joseph Campbell, is... I think far more uh, interesting. And we, you go out and instead of slaying the dragon, you're the one who gets slayed. Instead of dismembering the monster, you get dismembered. And that is the beginning of like the real arc of transformation uh, down into the pit and back out the other side. But so much of sort of what passes as the hero's journey is it's just a glorified Hollywood version of uh, Braveheart or something. Um, or Braveheart might be a bad example because he gets killed, but um, you just see sort of Disney characters that end up winning in the end. So, yeah, no, I love that because I, yeah, that's what I hear when someone says the hero's journey. It's like, oh, someone goes out there and you know takes over the world. But when you said this, it's like, no, the hero's journey is that you go out thinking that you're going to transform people and you're transformed. It's almost like, by the way, I used to teach in YWAM, and I used to say to people, you know, you're going to go on short-term mission. And in one sense, you probably are going out there because you think you're going to change the people. You're going to kind of bring some good news to the community you're going to. And I said, to be honest with you, you're probably going to find that you're the one who's transformed. Yeah. That actually you just make a mess. What can you do in two weeks going somewhere? You're just going to mess up. You're going to screw up. But maybe in the midst of it, you're going to find hospitality 
warmth, a different way of seeing the world. Mm. You think you're you're out there as a you know with the divine sword of the spirit going to bring some gospel truth to yeah. these people. Finally, finally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's true. Like anybody I know who's been sensitive and has done short term missions, they come back and they go, "No, I was the one who was yeah. slayed. I was the one who was." deconstructed as a result. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And you, and you beautifully, like you used a Rilke poem that kind of described mm -hmm. this yeah. journey. I, I, yeah, today um, we talked a bit about this Rilke poem and I don't have it in front of me, but there, here are the images. Um, Rilke uh, begins by saying, by describing a, a, a massive storm is building and it's coming toward your window. And it, as it grows, Instead of moving away from the storm, like going to the basement and hiding and sort of collecting all your your things, you actually move toward the storm. And then he then he then he describes the house. He says, the house was like the summer, where you knew where each thing stood. And it's like um, like when you turn the lights off in your house, and especially if you've lived there for a long time or you're like childhood home, you can turn the lights off and find your way around. And he says that's exactly what the summer is like. You know where each thing stands in the house. You have it arranged. It's like what's what you think you know up here or or your religion or your doctrines or your beliefs or your ideology or your politics. Yeah, I know where things stand. But he says eventually um, that no longer works. You, The world feels like a riddle again. That's, that's the language that Rilke uses in the poem. And then he says this. Summer was like the house where you knew where each thing stood now you must go out into your heart as onto a vast plain, and there the immense loneliness begins. And what, what I find so compelling about this poem, about this line, is that's what the story is like for many of us who have left. There's been some kind of severance, like we've gone over the edge of something. And instead of it being comforting and warm, it's actually felt like an immense loneliness. And the vast plain is like, like going into a part of who you are or out deeper into the world, into a landscape that you no longer recognize. Like the house no longer makes sense. But instead of hiding in the basement, you have the courage to walk out, shut the door behind you and walk toward the storm. And that's, I mean, this is some of the things we were talking about, but that's why so much of religion and church and group identity screams at you to stop. Don't go toward the storm. Let's just huddle in the basement and go over our old ways of thinking and believing or maybe just tweak them a little bit. But we'll essentially hide in the basement and not walk out toward the storm. But I think what Pete is encouraging those inside spirituality and or on the edge of Christianity or have gone over the edge to walk toward. Instead of like being talked out of your loneliness, your doubts, your fears, you're talked into them. And how deep is this particular canyon that you're sort of tumbling down into? That's sort of like the alluring draw of, I think, what Rilke uh, is talking a bit about in this poem. And certainly has been true in my own life. Yeah. And, and storms, I mean, in, in a sense, storms aren't something that you create or you do. Storms come. Something that you said in today's talk is that, that the storm might be uh, that you know your faith falls apart. It might be there's a death of someone you love. It might be that um, you know it's somebody you prayed for, a child you know doesn't get better, sure. or whatever it yeah. is. Something happens, and everything that was familiar in your world mm. 
is uncanny. Is yeah. is the storm is coming? Yeah. And then you talked about how there's really you've got you know you've got a couple of choices when that storm comes. Mm. You either kneel everything down mm. and keep it all familiar, mm. or Rilke is 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 encouraging us to step into that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and that's exactly right. Like sometimes it can be intellectual, like your your ideas stop working, but that's usually not as rich as your life stops working. And maybe it can't be so divided up. But, you know, sometimes I hear about pastors who like do some terrible, you know, commit some terrible transgression, like um, whatever they, they sleep around. And, and when I hear that, instead of thinking, oh, what a tragedy, I think actually there's a chance. There's a chance that this human being, this human being who is in and of themselves a, a profound mystery, is going to go toward the storm. Because whatever was there previously was there previously, just before the affair. And the affair or the breakdown or the you know psychosis or the whatever just simply came to the surface out of the blue. And there's a chance. There's a chance for like not real for journey. Them, not just for them, but for the whole community. Yeah, totally. It's like either the community can double down mm. and get rid of them and get life back to normal mm -hmm. or I guess it's a storm where we can go like, is there something about our community that needs to be rethought? Is there something yeah. about relationships that need to be rethought? Yeah. Is there something, you know, is that, I suppose it's, a, it's an opportunity for a whole mm. collective to, to go somewhere uncanny, somewhere yeah. new. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think um, that that's what makes it so hard because religious community, especially if you're like the authority figure, like I was a pastor for a long time, so when I start to express my doubts, which I did, sometimes I did in public, sometimes I did in private behind closed doors, I don't believe this or that or I doubt this or that, there's so much tension in that moment because what you're, what you're mirroring back to people is their own doubts. It's not that you're introducing them for the first time. It may feel that way, but you're actually just saying, no, I'm expressing something that you already know what's going on. You, you, this is going on in you. I'm just a giant mirror for you. And the temptation is, of course, to run them out. That's why Jesus gets crucified and the prophets get killed and all this kind of stuff. Not that I'm like some kind of prophet, but I just mean you want to expel the thing. We'll scapegoat the thing. We'll send it out of here so we don't have to face it. And I think that's one of the things that I find interesting about your work because you're saying, all right, what if the church just stopped trying to scapegoat? Or what if the church just said, inside, behind the curtain, this is going to be a place where you're going to bring doubt and unknowing and your shadow stuff, and, and you're going to bring it to the surface, and we're just going to let it sit there. We're going to let it hang in the air, because we all, and we're going to hold it kind of collectively without trying to get rid of it too quickly. Yeah, what, on this... Just please tell these guys, this is great, the advice that your therapist gave you. Um, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, so I have a therapist. This is a good example, you know. I think, of what he's talking yeah. about. I have a therapist, so I won't give you, like, you know, we're not going to go too, you know, go digging around too deep here, but I can give this one away. Um, so, yeah, I, w I was describing for my therapist this, this kind of, like, void, this black hole, or I don't remember the metaphor I was using exactly, but I was saying... If I were to let go of my persona as kind of spiritual answer man or pastor guy or biblical scholar person, and, and I start looking down into this canyon, I'm afraid that at the very bottom there's nothing there. There is, there's nothing there. There's, there's really no, um, to use Thomas Merton's language, true self or real self or nothing real. 
So, and I, and I said to him, I'm afraid that my life is going to fall apart, that I'm going to end up living in a van down by the river. And he said to me, just in, uh, right in that moment, he said, I'm, I'm here to make sure that happens, which is the opposite of so much counseling, so much advice giving, so much pastoral care, and so much therapy, which is, we're going to lower a ladder so you don't go anywhere near this. They, they talk you oftentimes, not always, but they talk you out of things like that rather than into them. And I think what we're trying to say is that it's, it's almost a new kind of faith to, to, to go toward the unknown requires so much more faith than, hey, here's a ladder for you to climb back into the known. So, and um, there's in, the, and in, in theology, that the walking into the storm, into the unknown, is called walking into the apocalypse. Apocalypse is like the, the unknown, the eruption of what you cannot imagine or see. And in some respects, to walk into the storm is to walk into you don't know what, into the unknown, and it's terrifying. Like, we feel like we're standing beside a trapdoor, and in that trapdoor there are monsters and ghosts and ghouls, and we put our foot in there every now and again, and it's terrifying. And maybe we go to church because we're like, don't put us in there, give us certainty and security. I have this black hole beside me that's all full of darkness and doubt and unknowing and anxiety, and, and I want to be saved from that. And the pastor's the one who's like, I'm going to make sure you go in there. Yeah, I'm going, to push you over. I'm going to push you over. <laughs> you don't want to go through that trapdoor. You're yeah. going to go in. And you know what? I think maybe you'll find life there. And the very thing that you think is bad might not be bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in case you think this is all like sort of anti-Christian, I mean, if you think about the story of, of Jesus in terms of the temptation, the temptation story, on the one hand, is a leaving home. Just like in the hero's journey, you have no story if you don't leave home. So Jesus leaves home. And I say this as someone who's, a, you know, for a long time was obsessed with Judaism and first century Judaism or Judaisms, really. There's not one thing. But in any case, he really broke with convention, with his father, with his mother, with his family, with his hometown. Um, even by being associated with John the Baptist, this was like a wild, crazy man in the wilderness, like, you know, the burning man of like the ancient times or whatever. And so Jesus goes, says no to a certain world and starts to move toward the unknown. That's what I would say. But it doesn't, and John the Baptist just simply opens the door. What happens next in the chronology um, is that he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness facing all of his demons. It's not Satan as some outside, you know, guy who like lives out in the wilderness. These are all of the, the internal junk, uh, I mean, that would be like the sort of the contemporary of reading it, but the internal junk that Jesus has to face, like all the trap door with all the demons and, and ghouls and ghosts and, and dark alleys. And if Jesus doesn't say no, go through severance and enter into the wilderness where there's a vast loneliness, which is exactly what Rilke is talking about, an immense loneliness begins at this point, that's when all of the sort of demons and shadowy material, and shadow is not bad. That doesn't mean, you know, we, t we think good and evil. No, it's not good and evil. It's just shadow and light. And there's a lot of, um, there are just as many gifts in the shadow as there are gifts in the light. But 
Jesus moves toward all that shadowy material and in a way, in, in a sense, discovers who he is. And he comes up out of the wilderness with these gifts. And what are the gifts? He starts talking about the kingdom of God. Oh, it's like a mustard seed. It's like this. Because he's gone through this sort of, this pattern himself. But what we do in Christianity is tell people, well, Jesus went through all that stuff for us so we don't have to. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. You know, like you did all that. You did all the hard work for us. Um, Meanwhile, we don't realize it's, it's in its invitation. The, the pattern is an invitation itself. That's why Jesus says, I think, although you might have your own take on this, he says, take up your cross. Like, but which is so funny because we sing songs in church like, oh, Jesus, thank you for taking up the cross so we don't have to. But out of his mouth, he says, no, no, no. You have your own thing to bear. You have your own wilderness to walk into. You have your own trap, trap door to fall through. Um, it's like, uh, you know, you climbed Everest, so I don't have to, but yeah. no, actually you climbed Everest and might inspire me to climb yeah. Everest as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the shadow side, a good way of thinking about the shadow side is in a sense, it's just all the repressed stuff. Like it's the stuff like where you hate yourself, but you don't admit that to yourself because you know, you, you, you don't say, or you think everyone of the opposite sex hates you. You don't think it. You don't consciously think that that would be a ridiculous thing to think. But you do, <laughs> you know, the repress is just the shadow is the stuff that you're not aware of, but it's, but you're living out and living in. And so bringing the shadow side to the surface and wrestling with those things, mm. um, you know, is, is a, it's a painful process, but a wonderful one. Yeah. I, I love the difference. I, I think you've heard me say this before, maybe, um, but the difference between raveling and unraveling to unravel means to pull apart. And that sounds very negative. You pull apart, you're, 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 you're coming apart at the seams. And what's the alternative? Is the alternative then to, you know, knit something new, something warm that will keep you safe? Um, or is the alternative raveling? And I think the alternative is to ravel. Now, the interesting thing is raveling means exactly the same as unraveling, but it sounds more positive. <laughs> it doesn't have the um bit. So you can ravel, you know, enjoy the raveling, enjoy the coming apart. Mm. The, the, the thing you think is going to be terrifying is going to be disastrous. The storm that you do want to go into, the apocalyptic storm that you want to protect yourself from might be that very place where you start to learn to enjoy this mystery, this unknowing, this adventure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I want to say... Uh, I want to say something about the shadow too, because um, just in the last couple of years, barely, I've, you know, just in my own personal life, wanted to sort of face some of the shadowy materials in my own psyche. And what I've learned uh, from some from some of my teachers is that one way of sort of just uh, a clue that you're on the right track is the the shadow is not something about yourself that you kind of just don't like. That's how some people use it. Oh, that's my shadow side. Like I you know, party too much, and, um, but I don't really, you know, I don't do it too often. Um, no, but that's actually something you already know about yourself. I mean, maybe you deny it from time to time, but you know that about yourself. The shadow is something that you don't know about yourself. That's why it's called the shadow. If you knew it, it wouldn't be in the shadows. And the way to begin to recognize it is that if accused, you flatly deny. So if someone, if someone comes up to me and says, um, you know, you, um, you're a liar, and I say, well, one thing I know about myself, the one thing I know is that there's no way that I'm a liar. Then, then I'm probably getting close to it. And just in terms of flat-out denial. Yeah, that, and that's, that can be called reaction formation where mm -hmm. the opposite... So, for example, someone who studies apologetics, they read all this apologetics. They've always got their Josh McDowell in their hand, right? 
they think that they have certainty and they whatever. Sometimes the, the shadow of that is actually they're full of doubt. Mm. That's why they keep reading all of these apologetic books. So, exactly. And, so on the surface, it looks like, yeah, I've got certainty. I've read all of this. I've got evidence that demands a verdict. And sometimes that's fine. But sometimes that can actually reveal that that person has lots of concerns and doubts and unknowing, but they're not even aware of it themselves. Yeah. And, the, and what they're doing is a reaction formation. It's kind of, it, it, it's the opposite of what it looks like. So a lot of fundamentalism looks certain, but actually is sometimes um, a cover for deep uncertainty and deep fear and deep anxiety. Mm. Yeah, and, and shadow too, I mean, those are kind of sinister dimensions of the, the shadow. But there can also be golden, yeah. golden ones. So like, let's say I'm hanging out with Pete or he's doing his, his thing and everything he says, everything that comes out of his mouth, I just think, oh my God, this is like the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I've never met anybody like this. He's so brilliant. Uh, he's a prophet among us. Um, he's, he's whole. He's put together. He has done all of his work. I'm just so envious. Even if I, <laughs> even if I wouldn't like bring up the word envy, that's the way I'm feeling. What, what's happening probably is that those elements are already in me. Like, uh, there's, I see in Pete this ability to understand philosophy in a way that I never could. Actually, probably that's in me, in, at least to a certain extent. And that's the attraction. It's like, I don't want to face it in myself, even the, even the so-called golden stuff. Like, the sinister stuff is one thing, but the golden stuff, I also don't want to face because then I might have to take responsibility. I might have to say, no, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for my own life, my own thinking, my 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 own reading, whatever. My own you know personal philosophy. I'm going to put that on Pete and let him do all that work for me, and I'll just kind of be his disciple. That's just as just and you have that all the time in the church. This is why people go to church and they let the pastor say things, believe on their behalf, or think on their behalf, or be moral on their behalf because they don't want to face whatever it is that's going on in, in their own lives. And I think what, we're, what, we're, what we agree on um, in this respect is that the real work begins when you walk into the storm and you start taking responsibility on that level and probing around in the shadows and saying, all right, what is it that I'm running from? Like, what is it that I refuse to admit? And might there be some morsel in there um, that's going to unlock the trap door for me to fall through. So yeah. Because this in itself can become its own, yeah, you can, you can look at this and this, us talking about this can, I suppose, feel like the work itself, but it's not the work. <laughs> yeah. This becomes yet another way to avoid going into the storm. Yeah. So now the new, the new orthodoxy is questioning, doubt, and unknowing without really actually going into that space <laughs> totally. yourself. Yeah. Totally. And I was like that personally, you know, because I, I did a lot of reading. I knew all about doubt and unknowing and, and uh, as a pastor, and I tried to hold these two things in tension, I knew all about severance, what I was talking about before, going out on the bigger journey, like Jesus saying no to your, and then walking out the door and shutting the door behind you. But unless I had the guts to go through it, um, it through it myself, then it was just an idea. It was just an idea that was kind of cathartic for a while. Isn't it nice that I know about these ideas of severance or I know about these ideas of the shadow or I know about these ideas of doubt or I know about the mystics that talk about unknowing. That's way different. And maybe that's like a taste that gets you going, but the invitation is to walk into the, the storm of your own mess. Um, if I, if, I don't know if this analogy works, but you know, imagine you're in a relationship and you know, it's, it's comfortable. You've been in it for a while. You know where everything is, but there's a storm brewing. 
you hear it, you feel it, you occasionally hear the windows rattle, something's not right, but you want to avoid that. You kind of keep everything, everything in its place, and you kind of like allow yourself, if something goes wrong, you go, oh no, it's fine, it's not a big issue. This going into the store might be going, okay, actually there's something wrong. And we could go on for the next 20 years denying it because we want the safe space. Of course, we all do in a relationship, but we have to go into the storm. And that might mean we break up or that might mean we have to think of a new way of doing a relationship mm. together and doing life together. But, but that, that, those windows are rattling mm. and the door's rattling. And, you know, I'm, I'm holding onto the cutlery and making sure it doesn't fall. But actually, that's, that's where we have to go. And that, so that's in an in individual life, but also in your religious world. Where is your storm? Where, what, what windows are rattling in your life um, that, are, that, that you're trying to, or that we all protect ourselves from, but that maybe you need to walk into? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like the end of a, that was a great sermon. Oh, there you go. Amen. Is there an amen? Any amens? <laughs> um, <laughs> I usually I kind of like um, bounce on see if there's any um, questions or comments. There's uh, Jennifer Grove, yeah, I know, yeah, already happened for me, but I do need a cohort. Ah, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm doing the best I can, but I'm I'm feel I'm feeling by myself. It's not okay to abandon one another to this. You don't have to rescue me, but you don't leave me alone. Ah, mm. uh, yeah, and there's a bit more. This is interesting because we talked about this. What one yeah. thing that Kent, Kent said, which is very scary, was what was the term Rilke used? But the the loneliness into there. go out into your heart or go out onto your heart as into a vast plain and there the immense loneliness begins so he depressed us all by going like you have to go into the immense loneliness the immense loneliness and it sounded very depressing but then as we talked there was one element which is we can be lonely together yeah, yeah. which doesn't take away the loneliness but, right. I, but well this is my point i was like um, maybe we differ in this i'm not sure but i'm like but when we go into this space we do need companions, other people who are in the storm as well. And that doesn't make the storm easier, but it's somehow, it's just, um, mm. it's just you're not alone. I don't yeah. know, in the loneliness. I don't know how to articulate that well, in your language. Yeah, no, uh, well, I, I thought about Thomas Merton's. Uh, James Finley, he was like a student of Thomas Merton. He was, um, Thomas Merton was his spiritual director. So he was in the monastery with Thomas Merton. And so he, he tells this story. He says, Thomas Merton used to say that um, imagine you're on your deathbed and there you are, you're laying there and you're about to die and all the people that you love are kind of gathering around you. And you can even invite them all into bed with you. Come on up, everybody get into bed. But, he says, you're still going to die alone and you're that alone right now. And I think what James yes. Finley is, <laughs> I think what James Finley is saying is that the, there is a kind of freedom, existential freedom that comes from this sort of admission. Yes, utterly alone, you're that alone right now. But the admission of that creates this kind of empathetic sort of connection with our, our sort of solitudes, or if, you, if I can make that plural. If, if we're all sort of in kind of isolation, that is the thing that... that connects us, mm. um, only admitting in, the, in that kind of loneliness. The problem with most intimate relationships is that we're, we hope they will, it will get us out of that. The one thing I want from my intimate other is 
I don't want to be alone. And if this person is going to save me from that, what, what I think what we're trying to say, and I think what Rilke is saying, is you've got to go toward that, and that becomes its own freedom. Don't put that on somebody else like, you saved me from my own aloneness. And that was what was interesting about the, her comment. It was like, I'm not looking to be rescued, but is there some camaraderie? And the answer to that is yes, there is some com camaraderie. There is a sense of, all right, we're alone together. Whatever, you said something brilliant about uh, alone together, two solitudes bowing to one another, that kind of image I think is powerful. Yeah, and that's certainly been true true in my own life. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I mean, there's a, something Lacan said. He said, there's no, there is no sexual union. Now, what he meant by that is he was critiquing the idea that some other out there will make you complete and whole. So he said, I think it was more precise, there is no sexual rapport, which means that whenever two people come together, they hope and we hope that we will be made complete. But Lacan's kind of saying that that never works. You know, momentarily we feel that maybe, but, yeah. but generally we, there is this lack that, that remains. But Lacan's not saying this in a depressed way. He then goes, that's one of the beauties, is at first when you go out with someone, you think, you complete me and I complete you. And they become this other who satisfies and can, can make you whole. But as you go deeper, you realize that, that actually you know, you're both on a journey together and there's a lack within both of you and actually to love someone is to realize that they are other to you and other to themselves and and that that, that there's a partialness mm -hmm. to the relationship and actually that's where we unify two people together journeying with with this with this lack and with this kind of aloneness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, think about the pressure we actually put on other people. Like with a phrase like you complete me, like whatever Tom Cruise said that in like some one of his movies, you know, you complete me and that's like oh so romantic. Think about the pressure that that mm -hmm. puts on another human being, another sacred holy human being. You only you make me whole. That is bound to break down. That that is first of all fundamentally false, but that is that is so much to put on someone else, and and what we end up doing in so many intimate relationships is it doesn't work. So it's like it's um, the person didn't complete me. So either I met the wrong person, or they could have complete me, but they were too neurotic and uh, crazy, and they had too many hangups from childhood. So I need to meet a, a more whole person, and we go shopping again. With this, with with all, with our nothing has changed in us. We're just shopping again for this kind of like puzzle piece that's going to fix us. Um, and there's there's an idea actually. I just remember Lacan talks about it again, but that it's like it's, getting. It's, by the way, it's, it's like getting, getting darker. darker. It's, it's like, kind of cool. I like it. Um, the uh, he says that in a sense, actually, he says there's a phrase: "Love is giving what you do not have." But but what he kind of means is, as well as that, that actually when you find someone you love, you, they don't complete you; they make you. They give you a lack because desire comes from a sense of lack. You desire something you, you, know, you don't have. And so you're going along in your life. Maybe everything's fine. And then you meet somebody and they evoke a desire in you. So in one sense, the other makes you incomplete. <laughs> the other makes you incomplete. And, and in some respects, you desire them um, in, in your incompletion. So there's something about love that is about enjoying and loving the other and caring for them and not being complete and going the other person is a universe to explore there is more of you to find you're always still to arrive there is like an example is the TARDIS and Doctor Who it's a tiny box but opens up to an infinite world 
So does your so is your beloved. They're a tiny fleshly frame, but they open up to an infinite universe mm-hmm. that just goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense you're not completed, like you know, I'm complete, I sit down, I smoke my pipe by the fire. But actually I'm in, on a journey of discovery. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, so there's a, something interesting about desire and lack. Yeah, I think actually the Bible does the same thing because the Bible creates a desire and and in some senses uh, gives you clues that you can be connected to God in some way. So it gives you images, ideas, metaphors, and stories of which when you bump up against them, you experience the lack. So it says things like, you know, God is my father, you know, Jesus saying, you know, calling God father. Well, when we bump into that, we don't experience that. That's what I'm saying. We, we experience the lack of that, which drops us through the trap door. It's like, it's like um, God is this, God is this, God is this, and, and giving us a little taste, but we have to go through it ourselves and experience the lack. Like Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At least in my view, you probably have a much better interpretation of that verse. What I'm saying is that that's not for him. I'm saying that's what happens to us. Until we feel forsaken by God and we go through it ourselves, we have no idea what is, what is possible. So... Yeah, yeah. I'd actually like, yeah, I'd like to do a Facebook live just on those verses. I got some, uh, yeah, it's a it's a very rich yeah. um, thought. But I should let we should let you go because yeah. it's getting darker and darker. It's like pitch black. It looks like Halloween we're here. Going, we're, <laughs> go, we're going deeper into the into dark, the darkness. Chasm. We're going. Iron. We're talking about the shadow and look at us. <laughs> we're like shadows, and we're about to disappear. Yes and into the storm. So thank you for joining us. Um, so happy to be able to introduce Kent to some of you. Obviously, many of you already know him, but um, you've got a book coming out. Yeah, I do. Um, it's, it's, it should be called Bitten by a Camel. Hopefully it'll be be out in February, so look for it and find me on Facebook. Yeah, And then when it comes out, I'll, I'll do something else with him to promote it. So thanks for joining us. Take care. And um, next time uh, you join me, I'll be back in LA. Take care.